You guys have your Bibles. If you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 now. The first verse of 1 Peter. Or, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2. And maybe a thumbs up when you guys kind of are there. Okay, cool. And I want to encourage you guys as we read through, um, we kind of read through the passage every, every week before getting into the message, but um, don't let this be a time where you're just kind of tuned out. Um, this is to look at the passage to kind of absorb it as we read through it so that you kind of understand um, the whole passage as we talk about it. So let's read it as such. Starting at verse one it says, we're going to read through verse eight. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, are uh, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that we can meet together and uh, sing songs and worship you and um, read your word. Lord, I ask that, um, that you would just soften our hearts, that you would open us up to um, what you're telling us through the hands of Peter here. Would you help us to desire your word? And um, yeah, we thank you. Amen. Okay, so when I was in, um, I think it was fourth grade, sorry, third or fourth grade, uh, we would read books throughout the year kind of in class, sometimes as a class, uh, sometimes you read a chapter and, and then you meet as a class. And one book that I read was Hatchet. Did you guys ever read Hatchet? Yeah. Um, if you don't, it, it's, it's the premise is this, this kid is going to see his father who uh, is like somewhere in Canada. So he's flying with a pilot and it's just him and the pilot on a small plane. The pilot has a heart attack and dies. And so uh, the kid, Brian, has to, you know, kind of crash land the plane as well as he can. And, um, and it, 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 he's just stuck in the woods of Canada, basically. And he has to survive. And I don't remember too much about the plot or the ending or what happens in it necessarily. But one thing I remember so, so clearly is the imagery that the author uses when um, they're describing the, uh, how, how thirsty he is when he first kind of crash lands. I think he eats some berries and he gets knocked out for a few days or something like that. And then he wakes up and he's thirsty. The words that uh, the author uses is, um, this is the quote from the book. He was unbelievably in an evil and violent way thirsty. His mouth was dry and tasted foul and sticky. His lips were cracked and felt as if they were bleeding. 
And if he did not drink some water soon, he felt that he would shrink up and die. And I remember uh, reading that and thinking that that had a lot of imagery in it. And, and it actually made me thirsty just reading it. And um, it made me thankful that I could just go get like a nice cold glass of water and drink that. But when you're in this sort of survival setting, the, the mindset, yeah, the, the mindset in this survival setting is, is water, 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 right? You're not concerned about what's going on on TV. You're not concerned about uh, the school dance that you had coming up or anything like that. It's water. That is your sole focus. And that is the only thing you're concerned about in that moment. I purpose, purposefully bring this up um, this idea of kind of thirst, because I think that it will actually help prepare you to understand the weight of what Peter is saying. Um, Because just as someone stranded on an island or something has a thirst and a survival instinct for water, so should we as Christians have a thirst and, and even a survival instinct to be filled with God's word. In these eight verses, Peter seems to be stressing that as exiles in this world, we must cling to the word of God as our daily bread, right? As exiles, as people that, like, that he's writing to who may have lived there their whole lives, but as Christians who aren't in heaven with the Father, we aren't at home, we are on this world, we are exiles, we must cling to the word of God as our daily bread. And... Um, uh, there's, there's sort of three reasons or three things, uh, I guess, that are fruits of clinging to the word of God that I think Peter points out. Those are that the word of God will transform you, the word of God will fill you, and it will build you. These things overlap quite a bit, but we will see how they are distinct also. Look at um, verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, so. We're one word in, but we're going to pause because when he says so, some of your translations say therefore, maybe where so. He's, uh, that, that means that whatever is coming before it is implying what he's about to say. So when he says, so therefore, or, or so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, we have to know why he's saying that. So look up at verse 22 of chapter 1. We talked about last week, but it's going to give us some context. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Listen, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's, he's saying that this word uh, or, or the reason why you're putting away malice and deceit and slander, all those things that he lists is because this word that you have been born again through is the imperishable word of God. This is the very word that actually has transformed your heart. And it's continuing to transform your, your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the word that became flesh, as John 1 puts it. 
So because we are born again by this imperishable seed to this living hope, which has basically been the theme of this whole book so far that we've been kind of looking at. It's been a big encouragement to the elect exiles, right, to the Christians, uh, saying that you have been born again to an imperishable seed. And, and you, though you go through trials and though you stay here, your exile here in this world is going to be trialsome. It's going to be difficult. You've been born again to an imperishable seed. And so you have a living hope. So he says to put away malice. When we think of malice, I think um, the main way that we kind of uh, speak of malice is, is in the term malicious. We use it to uh, kind of say like someone has a malicious intent, someone has an ill intent or intends harm, right? If, if Sammy comes up to pat me on the back, tell me I did a good job and, and maybe he hits me a little too hard and I just fall forward, maybe he hurt me, but he didn't have a malicious intent, right? But if he comes up and just gives me a whack on the back and I fall forward, that was clearly intentional. That was with malice. So he intended to hurt me or he just doesn't know how to control his arms. And then he, he proceeds to give us three examples of malice. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He, he uh, kind of says these all as their own thing, but these are forms of malice. Deceit. Put away deceit. Well, the word used to describe deceit is, is, is uh, the, the word that is used to describe uh, bait on a fish hook. And so what better way to describe deceit, right? If, if you put a bait on a fish hook, the fish is expecting a nice meal, but you're, you know you're about to just yank it up and kill it, right? So, so put away all deceit. Hypocrisy. We know what hypocrisy is. We see a big picture of hypocrisy um, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. That's a prime example of hypocrisy, basically saying not to do something, but then doing that anyway, right? If we try to justify our salvation because we think that we've been good, we are hypocrites because we preach a gospel of grace and grace alone, not by works. Let's fly, man. Envy. Put away envy. I want to pause on envy a little bit. Because it's one of these ones that, that is, uh, it's just hard to imagine when you kind of have a sober mind and you kind of put things into perspective. How can one who is born again, who is adopted by God, be envious of something? What are you to be envious of? If you have been born again, if, you, if God has adopted you, if you, through this word, have been uh, sanctified and, and, and are starting to understand what it means to have a living hope in Christ, and you, you understand that you, you behold this word, you behold the gospel that comes through this word that tells of a Savior who came and died for you on a cross and took on the wrath of God for you in substitution for you, if you know that, things which angels long to look at in verse 12 of chapter 1, then what exactly do you have to be envious of? Especially for um, after non-believers. What do you have to be envious of? What fame do you have to be envious of? What riches do you have to be envious of? What guy or girl do you have to be envious of? In Philemon 3, 7 through 10, Paul talks about how the, these, these ways of old thinking, these uh, former passions are like feces. 
poop. These former passions of yours, these former thoughts are like theses compared to that of these now living hope thoughts. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, comments on that saying, what normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? It's just a thought. Slander. Hypocrisy breeds deceit and envy breeds slander. What is slander? It's basically when you speak illly of someone, you put them down in your words to kind of put yourself up. Satan's name uh, means slanderer. Satan's job, his occupation, his very uh, reason for his existence is to slander Christ. Is to try to convince you that, that Christ actually isn't quite enough to save you. That, that Christ actually is boring. That Christ uh, is, you know, just not worthy of your praise. That this uh, book here, it was written for a nomadic society thousands of years ago and doesn't apply to you. Satan is the slanderer of Christ and he will try to convince you that this stuff is not worthy of understanding, that Christ is not worthy of worship. And you, know, you want to know something? Paul says that we were once childs of wrath. We were once childs of Satan. You are child of the slanderer, but then you've been born again to Christ. So if you think that you've gone from uh, like, like zero, like level, to positive infinity being born again, you've actually gone from more like negative infinity to positive infinity. So you can rejoice in that. You can rejoice knowing that though you were once a child of wrath, you have been purchased and redeemed. If I'm being honest, personally, witnessing slander there are few things that are more destructive to a Christian life. Envy breeds slander. Slander breeds gossip. And gossip, I have seen destroy Christian communities. If there is slander among you, if there is gossip among you, you need to remove that. Matter of fact, keeping any of these things close, any of these forms of malice close to you results in a failure to love your neighbor. He says to put it away, to get rid of it. The, the word put away means like remove a piece of clothing, like, like literally throw it in the closet, lock it, throw the key away and don't even think about it. Don't touch it. Don't go near it. A lot of people don't seem to know this, but one of the best movies ever made is the original Spider-Man 3 um, yeah. Tony McGuire. But in that movie, what happens? Venom comes down, right? From outer space. He, it's, a, it's a symbiote that latches onto Peter, latches onto Spider-Man. It, it, it just it infests him, right? It infects him, and, and, and his red and blue suit kind of turns black. He starts acting kind of emo. He, he does some weird things. <laughs> he, he does like a dance and stuff, right? But, but he, he's turning, he's turning, honestly, he's turning evil. His, his good self is becoming evil. When he's Peter and when he's Spider-Man, it's affecting his mind. 
And, and one day he, he, uh, he literally hits Mary Jane, the woman he loves, right? And, and this, um, this is when he kind of has the light bulb moment. This is when he realizes that this is bad for me, even though I feel really good and I feel powerful and I feel strong and I feel confident, things that he doesn't normally feel. He, he realizes that this is bad. So what does he do? He goes up to uh, the top of a church and he is clawing away at this venom stuff. He is just doing whatever he can to get it off. This thing that he loves, he, he realizes that it's bad and he is just clawing at it. He is screaming. It's really intense. He's just ripping it off. And finally, he finds some success and, and the venom starts to leave him. And what do we see? We see, we see uh, Peter and he's just kind of like laying there. He looks like a little baby and he's just laying there having removed this venom from him. And it's just this music. It's like, like he, he got rid of it, right? He removed this from himself. He tore it off because he knew that it was destroying him. Remove these things from you because they destroy you. They destroy the life of a Christian. They have no place in the life of a Christian. Because this is the word through which you are saved. And, and, and it's not... Um, it's not a pastor or, or a friend or, or a message that saves you. Everything is derived from this word. So the glory is to God alone. The glory is to God alone. Because it is through this word that you have been exposed to the true and living gospel, which angels long to look at, you are being transformed by the living spirit through the word, through the gospel of Christ. Put away all malice. This is the word that transforms the hearts of Christians. Transforms you. Look at verse two. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that, it, uh, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I mean, have you guys ever seen a baby in your life? I hope so at some point. Was a, ba- a baby has one focus when it first comes into this world. I, I like the way uh, MacArthur kind of talks about it. The baby doesn't care about the color of blanket. It doesn't care about the crib. It doesn't care about all these like, little shoes that you get it at, at first. It's a baby. It has one desire. Milk, right? Yes. That's its one desire. It longs for milk. Honestly. And, and when it's hungry, and when it, I mean, a baby is gentle and a baby is cute. We can all agree for the most part. But when it wants milk, when it's hungry, it's like a motorcycle revving in the back of your ear. Like that thing has, has the natural sound that, that can penetrate through walls when it's hungry. It cries out. It craves this milk. That's, it. That's what it needs. That's what it wants. That's its one desire. That's its focus. He's saying like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. What are we longing for? We're longing for this spiritual logikos, is that right? Yeah. Derived from the word logos, which means word, milk. Most biblical scholars uh, think that it's consistent with the context that, that the spiritual milk is none other than the word of God. So he's saying, like newborn infants, long for this word. He's telling us, long for this word. Christians, do you crave this word? Do you crave this word that you hold? It's not a question of maturity. It's not saying that um, 
He's not calling anyone a baby as far as an um, immature Christian. He's saying, such as a baby has one focus and one desire, so you, Christian, have one desire for this very word, this living and abiding word of God. Why? Because you can recall that it is the source of your transformation. Because, like in the song we are singing, when we are prone to wander, this is the revelation from Christ. This is, this is God speaking to us through words on paper. This is what holds us fast. This is what holds us close. This is what keeps us stable. So admit your need. You can't survive without it. Like an exile in the world. Like, like someone stuck on an island who needs water. You cannot exist as an exile in this world without the word of God. And I think, I think uh, just Christians in general, myself included, we, we forget what this is. We, we, we kind of like sometimes think of it as like a bit disconnected because it kind of takes place in an older time and stuff like that. And sometimes it uses words we don't quite understand. But, but I mean, this is God speaking to you. It really is. It really is. What's a, what's a famous person? Like Chris Hemsworth? If, if Chris Hemsworth called me on my phone and, and said, hey, this is Chris Hemsworth, um, and, and, uh, and, and I would like to be your best friend, and uh, I'll call, actually, you call me whenever you want, and I'll always pick up, and, and we'll just be best friends. I probably would go about 30 seconds, and i call him back because it's Chris Hemsworth. I'm going to keep calling him, Right? And that is the sinfulness of my heart and probably a lot of our hearts for this world. We um, are just so like, focused on being sought after just the passions of this world. But do you understand that you have the eternal word of God in your hands? Things which some nations long to have. This is a privilege. Verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't know how this makes you feel, but it is abundantly clear that Peter is saying that a mark of a Christian is to desire the word. So do you desire the word? Do you long for the word? Do you seek the word? Are you in the word? It is not a question. If you have tasted the Lord's goodness, you will long to know him more. If you long to know him more, you must turn to his word, which is his means that he uses to speak to us. God speaks through his word and it will fill you. It will fill you. It will transform you and it will fill you. I know you guys went through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who, are, uh, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. It's found here. Let's look at verse 4. 
says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself, uh, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. <laughs> living stone rejected by men. Uh, don't be surprised when you start to find or when you have found that, that you, that that desiring God, that, that reading the word, that being filled by this word is utter, is complete and utter foolishness to the world. It just is. For people's hearts who haven't been transformed or sanctified or, or, or drawn to God. And you don't, you don't know how many people have looked at me sideways for saying I'm going to go to seminary and spend a bunch of money to spend four years learning more about this book. It's just foolishness. They don't understand. It just, it doesn't make any sense, right? But if this is the word of God, then it is worthy of staying consistently. And it is. This is what it is, what it is to be an exile in this world. So you come to him, a living stone rejected by man inside of God chosen and precious. Living stone is kind of an oxymoron. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Something that's living and something that's a stone is, is not living. Matter of fact, when you see something that's dead, you would often say that it's stone dead, right? So when he says living stone, it's actually, uh, you can see later on, he supports it by three Old Testament passages. Let's look at those. Verse six. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16. Verse 7 says this, uh, so he prefaces it by saying, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118, 22. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8, 14. He's declaring that these passages from the Old Testament, things which were maybe hidden from the people, right, which we looked at a few weeks ago, have been revealed to us and for our sake so we can understand that what they're referring to is actually Christ. Is Christ coming? And when he says, you know, uh, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, that, that's, that's the difference between salvation and damnation. So these passages that talk about a stone, a living stone, a moving stone, a growing stone, a cornerstone, a foundational stone that your lives are built on. Verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So not only are these passages referring to Christ who is a living stone, but, but, but all of a sudden he's saying like you. So we see how, how the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God kind of works in Christians. We see how the sanctification kind of makes you more like Christ, right? Turning from sin to be more like Christ. Builds you up into, uh, it says uh, in the end of verse, or uh, middle of verse five, to be built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A spiritual house, the church is composed of, of, of people, Christians, who are being more and more uh, sanctified to look like Christ, where Christ will dwell. 
Why are we being built up? What is, why is this word, why, why is it important that we know that this word is, is the, the, the focus and, the, and what we kind of point everything to when we're being built up? Why is it important that, that we stay as a, as a word-focused church, as, as a Bible-focused uh, Christian? Why is that important? Because it produces worship. Be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. Holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, these people were the ones who were sacrificing to God for the atonement of sins, for for worship. And Romans 12.1 says that we are living sacrifices. So worship is the point being built up by this word. Worship is not entertainment. It, worship is not for your own merit. When you walk away from the service, the sole, the sole purpose of, of if you uh, enjoyed that service, I suppose, should be, did, did it glorify God? That's why we do church. That's why I'm talking. That's why we do worship. It's not so that you feel good. It's so that you give the glory to God. It's not entertainment. Bring no more futile sacrifices, says the Lord in Isaiah. Worship on your own merit is not worship. This is the very word that has delivered the news of salvation to you. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. And so it is the very word that reproves the hearts of Christians and builds the church. Symbolically, it is the word that takes a hideous, demon-possessed woman and makes her fit to be the bride of Christ. As the church is so often described. This word is building you. It's building us as a community. It's so important that this word is the foundation. Coming full full circle, back to the hatchet sort of analogy. The, the one thing I remember after he's so thirsty is that he scuffles over, kind of crawling over to this lake, and he just dunks his head and he just drinks water like no man's business. I remember saying that his throat swelled up because he was drinking so much water. So listen, when you thirst, you must drink. And when you are under attack, you must be guarded. This is the word that satisfies a famished soul, a hungry soul. And this is the word that guards the exile who is prone to wander. Everyone has a sort of a a thirst. but, But the thing is, if you're stuck on a private island, you don't drink from the surrounding ocean water that is salty. You don't just drink something because it's disguised as something that would probably be good for you. You want to go and find a stream of healthy water, of fresh water, and that's what you intake. So stop taking in dying hopes to fill you up. That's not going to fill you up. Always go to the living hope, the living 
hope which is found in this word of God. Wisdom is not hard to find. It is often difficult to apply. It's not hard to find. Get the point? But it can be difficult to apply. This is not... Uh, The purpose of this message isn't about morality. I'm not just telling you, go and read your Bibles more. It's a reminder of the living hope that you've been born into. It's a reminder of of the hope in Christ that you have. Like Aaron was saying, people will go to hell for the sins you commit. But because you are in Christ, you are saved by grace. there, There is nothing that can strip you from that. This is a hope that's imperishable. It's found in here. It's, it's simply just a reminder. It's just a reminder of this living hope. So I'd encourage you to look at this word before other things. The Holy Spirit, through this word, transforms the heart of a Christian. It fills the famished soul. And it builds the body of a Christian into a beautiful bride. And it is the only way that you will survive your time here as an exile. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, which is so accessible to us. Lord, would you remove just the the deceit in our hearts that tell us, that this word is something that it's not. Would you remind us of the importance and the privilege that we have to even behold this word? Would you move our hearts? Would you help us to desire you more? Father, we pray these things. We ask that you would continue to sanctify our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.